Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. Hello, ED ECMO. It is just about to become May, and uh, this is Zach Shiner. We are here entering the month of May, and actually today, should say yesterday, our paper got released. Our paper, Journal of Emergency Medicine, uh, our basically seven-year emergency physician cohort. Uh, we are super excited about it, and uh, go ahead and check it out. It's on the website. We'll, uh, we'll make you look at it, and you can take a look at... Um, I did some propensity analysis and some odds ratios, and it's in favor of ECMO in comparison to traditional CPR, just one of so much literature that's coming out in the field of eCPR. But today, today I'm here with Troy. Troy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Troy Sealhammer is from Mayo, Mayo up in Minnesota. And Troy, tell us, what do you do up there? Um, well, it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, I am one of the intensivists and anesthesiologists at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and I'm one of the uh, co-directors for the ECMO program, uh, particularly on the adult side here in Rochester. And so Troy and I were at uh, the Mayo Conference in Scottsdale teaching ECMO down there just last month, and I heard him give a lecture on anticoagulation that was just phenomenal. I mean, it really was phenomenal, and it, it made me think about this topic in ways that I, I haven't really thought about it before. And so today I want to explore that. I want to explore everything about like what are we doing with the with the blood because we have them on this machine and what are the things we need to worry about and how do we deal with the, the problems that arise from that. And Troy has got this down. So Troy, just let's start this off kind of in, in a more uh, basic fashion. Why is this important? Why do we need to really be thinking about anticoagulation on our ECMO patients? Well, you know, first off, one can easily think of anticoagulation ECMO as a you know, boring, mundane topic. But in actuality, um, for those of us that, that manage these patients on a regular basis, it's among the most common questions that we get at the bedside. And it's also one of the most important to, to answer uh, what to do with your anticoagulation to go up or to go down or to change agents. It's also one that uh, in the last several years has been met with significant changes and likely uh, significant more changes to come in the coming years. Really, the, the problem here and, and why we need anticoagulation is that uh, ECMO circuits are a form material and blood has to maintain contact for a prolonged period of time with that foreign material and as such it's a you know, classic model of contact phase activation uh, and our, our goal with anticoagulation then when administered systemically is to quiet down uh, those pathways. Yeah, yeah. So we think about this in dialysis. We think about uh, how patients' blood changes, how their like von Willebrand's problems that occur, and that these constant activation and things like you were just commenting on. In in our ECMO patients, is this is this something that you feel is something we need to be constantly thinking about? Is this something I can just kind of set it and forget it? Well, tell us how can I start just tackling the topic overall. Well, let's think about more of the classic way that we would approach these circuits um, in, in decades past. Our circuits were more complex, they had more splice points, uh, and they weren't coated with any sort of biocompatible materials. Uh, in addition, they had um, less caustic environments like these uh, different sorts of pumps um, and these bladders, and these bladders had areas of stasis. So they were more prone to the deposition of clot, and that clot ends up going places. It gums up the circuit and reduces your ability 
ability to maintain adequate flow, but it also can embolize into your patients causing complications. And so since the very beginning, very much like in cardiopulmonary bypass, um, there has been a necessity for uh, near or full systemic anticoagulation to quiet down secondary and also primary hemostasis. Um, in the past several decades, the circuit design has improved significantly. We've been able to simplify things a great deal. We no longer use bladders. And by and large, the majority of the circuits are, uh, are now coated with a biocompatible material, uh, heparinoids and, and other proprietary um, surface coatings that have markedly diminished the need for high-intensity systemic anticoagulation. And, and yet they remain imperfect. Um, and unlike a cardiopulmonary bypass run in the cardiac operating rooms where you might have a bypass run of a few hours, here ECMO runs are routinely running days, weeks, and months these days. Uh, and as such, that sustained activation ends up causing problems over time. And so um, you have to approach this in a dynamic fashion. Uh, what is necessary initially when the, the circuit is brand new and not coated with any of the proteins from the patient's blood um, is greater intensity of anticoagulation, um, but uh, also with fresh coatings that are biocompatible, you may be able to get by early on with, with very little anticoagulation with modern circuit designs. And as this, these patients, um, their trajectory unfolds, if they are met with periods of uh, inadequate hemostasis, you can safely get by without any anticoagulation now for fairly prolonged periods of time. And we can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so that's the cool stuff about ECMO and trauma and how we're running circuits without any heparin at all. Um, so you mentioned one thing there that's pretty important, I think, and that is that the timing since initiation dictates your, your how aggressive you are with the anticoagulation. Is that true? That Yeah. Um, so... If you're coming off uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, for example, these patients are fully heparinized, and by and large, they wouldn't require any additional heparinization or alternative agent therapy at that point. And in fact, partial reversal may be indicated, probably is indicated. Uh, whereas if you're doing a fresh cannulation for venovenous ECMO or for ECLS, um, you need a smaller amount of, of heparin just to quiet down that initial cascade. And the cascade is complex. It involves uh, platelet activation, degranulation. It also involves activation of a series of zymogen precursors, ultimately accumulating in the creation of fibrin monomers and cross-links things. Um, so you really need to be uh, have some heparin on board initially to avoid massive circuit thrombosis, at least until you get up to full speed and full flows. But once you're on full flows, the circuit itself uh, is rapidly coated with with proteins it, it sort of endothelializes to a degree with all these proteins that are circulating in the patient's own blood to make it less prone to activation okay so help me understand this so uh, i i'm got a patient there in cardiac arrest we're doing chest compressions on him. we put in the cannulas the cannulas are heparin coated right yes and the actual circuit is it heparin coated it depends on which circuit you're using. Um, most of the, the new polymethylpentene membrane oxygenators are coated with some sort of um, heparin-based compound or uh, other um, sort of quieting down um, biomimetic surface coatings. The cannula tubing itself depends upon which, which tubing you're using. Some cannulas are, are coated and some are not. At the Mayo Clinic uh, in Rochester, we use all of our, our cannulas by and large are coated except for our distal perfusion cannulas. Okay, and so um, I don't, I'm not even sure I really know what that means. That just means that they, they sandblasted on the middle of the, the cannula some, some heparin? Excellent question. Excellent question. So, um, you know, in, in years ago, it was like graphite coating, and you could 
bond heparin to it. And then they developed ionic heparin binding techniques um, and just took advantage of all of the charges on heparin itself to stick it to the coating. So after you, you extrude this plastic material, you then coat it before you package it. Um, and more recently, it's now covalent bonding, which it has subtle differences, but a little bit more durable of an effect. Um, and the, the heparin effect on the, on the surface coating doesn't actually leach out and cause systemic heparinization. It just blocks activation of platelets and secondary um, hemostasis zymogen precursors at the site of the, of the cannula itself. Whoa. Okay. So I've got this heparin on the, the cannula and maybe on my circuit. The blood goes through the circuit. Now I have um, less of the fibrin and all that attaching to the side of the cannula, but I do have the native proteins of the blood attaching. Is that what you're saying as far as the endothelialization? Yes. Yes, uh, albumins um, uh, is the primary protein that's circulating in, in plasma. So that ends up being the primary protein that binds to, to current uh, cannulas. In the future, there's, there's multiple investigators studying uh, sort of next generation uh, coatings, which are some are, are nanomaterials, some are very proprietary type things like nitric oxide. All of them are, are designed to inhibit binding of proteins in general, making them as slippery as possible. If, if the surface is so slippery that proteins can't bind, they can't become activated. And that quiets down the anticoagulation side of things, but also quiets down the immune cascade. So there's a, there's a number of benefits that can be extracted from improvement in circuit design. Mm, interesting. Okay. So, so in some ways, I, I, I'm feeling in one way, I want the proteins to be on there because then this epithelialization occurs so that I don't have to use as much heparin. But in the future, maybe if we just prevent the, the proteins from binding at all, then we will kind of be at the steady state even at the very beginning. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's an excellent way of describing it, Zach. Okay. So, so now I've got a difference between early initiation. I need to be more aggressive early. I also, I think you said that the flows, the amount of flow that I have through the circuit is also a factor. Yeah, so it, there's a couple of phenomenons that occur here. Um, one is just the amount of time that it takes the blood to move from the start of the circuit to re-enter the patient's native circulation. The longer it's there, the longer that little bit of blood is exposed to that foreign material. And you end up with an accumulation of burden of activation. Um, the other hmm. thing that occurs, and, and we are built this way, if you remember uh, Verkow's triad, uh, stasis is important. And the stasis is important for an, an, one other reason, and that's because as you activate all of these, these proteins in the coagulation cascade, if they, are, if they are allowed to stay there locally, they will eventually form, um, form clot. And if you can wash them out with flow, which it happens in our native vasculature, then you can avoid that accumulation of all these activated proteins. Um, and so by maintaining circuit flow in adults, uh, two liters a minute is defined as adequate flow. Uh, and in that setting, um, with modern circuits, you can, you can achieve uh, anticoagulation-free ECMO um, for actually quite sustained periods of time on the order of days. There's also plenty of case reports describing in excess of 20 days without any anticoagulation at all. Uh, but if you have lower flows, much more problematic, much more prone to either massive circuit thrombosis or embolization. Okay. All right. So in our protocol, we before we turn the pump on, we give them a big bolus of heparin, 5,000 units. Do you think that's a smart thing to do, a reasonable thing to do? 
It's an essential thing to do. Yes. Um, between 30 and 70 international units uh, per kilo as a bolus. Um, and then once that bolus is in, uh, you, you don't really need to, to check necessarily uh, adequacy of anticoagulation. You can just go on. Um, the incidence of uh, heparin resistance to those doses is exceedingly rare. Uh, and you certainly wouldn't want to add additional delay in initiating your ECLS ECMO um, while waiting for labs to come back. So you give that bolus, you go on ECMO, and then once once you're safely on and you've dealt with local hemostasis, then you can try and figure out the right time to initiate systemic anticoagulation. It just gives you time. All right. And is that the, is that the right med? Is, I mean, we have all these anticoagulants. Is heparin the right med? That's a very, very good question. It remains controversial. Um, heparin is the gold standard for systemic anticoagulation, and, and that's by and large um, um, historic, uh, but also because it's low cost. So if you think about how ECMO came to be, it is sort of a maturation uh, and a migration of cardiopulmonary bypass into a more sustained, durable form of life support. And as such, a lot of the lessons learned in the cardiac operating rooms um, have been migrated to ECMO. And in cardiac operating rooms, heparin is the gold standard. And it remains the gold standard um, because it is low cost, widely available. It's also reversible. We can reverse it with protamine, which buys you safety if you no longer have hemostasis. Um, but heparin is also an uh, imperfect agent. Its half-life is fairly long. And, and under ECMO, you don't actually want to fully reverse all at once unless you really are dealing with massive hemorrhage because uh, it, it risks for, uh, for clot formation. Additionally, it has risk for uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and this widely varying dose response curve, making it very unpredictable. You have to draw a lot of, of labs to find the right amount of heparin to give, and it seems like every time you get the labs back, you have to adjust the dose. Uh, for those reasons, it's, it's quite imperfect. We don't even have a standard lab test to titrate heparin level um, uh, dosing to. For example, uh, traditionally ACT or activated clotting time was employed, um, and that is still used at some centers, seeking to achieve a level of 180 to 220 seconds. But um, more recently, and many centers have migrated to APTT uh, instead, and we're looking for one and a half to two and a half times normal. Uh, more recently now, there is uh, something called the anti-10A level, also known as the heparin level, and that is becoming very popular outside of device patients in many hospitals, and it's moving into device patients. And by that, I mean ECMO patients and left ventricular assist device patients. But we don't have enough data to say that one is better than the other, and certainly there's a disconnect. If you draw all three of these tests, they will give you different information all at the same time, and you're left with trying to interpret it at the bedside. Mm. Okay, I'll I'll put those those numbers in the show notes so you can kind of reference them because I think that's something good to have on hand when you're in the thick of it. Now you mentioned some of the new blood. So so in what would be your choice? You're you're at Mayo. You got everything. Do you do you pull heparin off? Do you do bivalvarudin? What what do you do? I'm glad you brought up bivalvarudin. That is uh, a very commonly cited um, agent in ECMO communities in the last five years. Uh, and, and what let's talk about bivalvarudin, the drug itself. Um, this is a, a compound that is a direct thrombin inhibitor. It doesn't rely on a second protein. To contrast that with, with heparin, where heparin acts by increasing the activity of antithrombin 3. So you rely on, on, you need to have an adequate amount of both heparin and that second protein. And that second protein has levels that fluctuate tremendously uh, during long ECMO runs and even during sepsis and inflammation, which makes this dose response curve unpredictable. Bivalrudin is fundamentally different. It acts directly at thrombin. 
by quieting down thrombin, you can't convert and cleave uh, fibrinogen into fibrin, which means you can't you can't create that last protein that links together all these platelets. You can't firm up the platelet plug. So um, bivalrutin is tremendously efficacious um, for quieting down that single protein without a, that second protein being required. Um, additionally, it has a short half-life. It is largely organ independent for its, its clearance. It's only about 20% renally cleared. The rest is, is these blood proteases. Um, and so it has a very, in general, a predictable kinetic curve and a dose-response curve. Uh, there is a preliminary data that suggests that uh, your ability to achieve adequate systemic anticoagulation is better with bivalrutin when compared to heparin on ECMO patients. And as such, um, you can achieve a better balance between hemorrhage and excess clot formation. You end up having to, to draw less lab samples and you end up having to transfuse less blood. Um, at the Mayo Clinic two years ago, we transitioned to bivalrutin as our first line for systemic anticoagulation on ECMO on both adults and pediatrics. Uh, and in this two-year interval, we're in the process of writing up our data, but we've noticed a marked diminishment in the, the frequency that we have to intervene upon our circuits for laydown. We're just not accumulating as much debris on our circuits, this fibrin and clot on our circuits which is tremendously efficacious for our patients. At least that's what we believe currently. And the literature supports that, at least preliminary research. Okay, so now I've got the guy. He's got chest compressions going on. I'm about to put him on pump. What do I do? Do I give him a dose of divalorudin or do I, how do I initiate ECMO with someone when I'm going to use your kind of protocol of using divalorudin over heparin? There are centers that use bivalrutin as a bolus uh, at the time of initiation of ECMO. We aren't one of those centers. We start with uh, heparin as a bolus going on, largely because of our familiarity and experience with it, just as many centers around the world. And then once it's time to initiate that continuous infusion, we choose bivalrutin. Interesting. Okay, so we got some stuff to take home here. First, flows are or ECMO clotting is dependent on flows. It's also depending on time from initiation of ECMO and where they were just prior. Were they in the cath lab? Were they in the uh, CT surgery getting on total bypass? Third thing is maybe bivalarudin is the way to go uh, from now on. So let's talk about the 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 hemorrhaging patient, because I've had so many issues. Like I can remember just sitting up all night with this guy who had epistaxis from his fall from his VF arrest and just can't stop the bleeding. Give us some guidance in, in those types of patients and how we can manage their anticoagulation. I think it's very important to have a framework that you approach your patients with. It helps you avoid having to recreate the wheel every time you approach that hemorrhaging patient, and it avoids missing things. Uh, and the framework that I would offer to the listeners are uh, always, always start with your, your patient. Are they bleeding or are they forming too much clot? That, that's the first question that you have to answer. And it's not just the, the patient's tissues, but look at the, at the circuit. So start with the patient, then move on to the circuit and seeing what kind of progression you're having with your circuit laydown. Nearly all patients will have some laydown. You want to know if it's, if it's dissoluting over time or if it's worsening over time. So that's your second question. So first patient, second circuit, and then move on to a battery of lab testing. That battery is the things that you'd imagine in your head, cell counts, uh, hemoglobin, platelet count, fibrinogen. Then you're going to want um, the actual coagulation parameters, your INR, APTT, and 10A. Those are all very essential if you're using heparin. Um, and then lastly, I would highly suggest using a viscoelastic assessment. And by that, I'm referring to thromboelastography or rotational thromboelastometry 
if your institution has access to them, they offer a, a, a great deal of clinical advantage. And the real advantage is that you get a point of care assessment of the entire coagulation cascade with the impact of platelets. So how quickly do things firm up? What is the maximum amount of clot strength that you can generate? And lastly, in a way that you can't assess in any other way currently, you can get an idea of whether or not you have excess breakdown of that clot. And that's also something that's very, very important for determining if the patient's in a DIC state um, or if they're just hyperfibrinolytic for some other reason. Oh, man, there's so much to unpack right there. Uh, so using TEG uh, for your analysis of, of circuits. So do you, okay, let's see, where, where do we want to start with this? I think let's go back to the, to the hemorrhaging patient. So um, I think in that patient, you're looking at them, they're bleeding from their nose or they're bleeding from their groin site. Is it reasonable to turn off the heparin? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, yes, absolutely. You're, you're going to want to do that uh, probably right away. Um, and if, if you have the ability, if it's a massive hemorrhage, you're going to want to think about reversal. But just do the things that you're used to doing in a non-ECMO patient. If you have a patient who is super therapeutic on Coumadin in your emergency room or in your ICU or in your operating room, you're going to think about reversing it, and you're certainly going to stop giving them Coumadin. You do the same thing here for your ECMO patient. Um, you also want to mobilize the right resources. That means allocating uh, blood that's, that's typed and screened and getting it ready at the patient's bedside, making sure you have adequate uh, vascular access, and if necessary, other things like a surgeon, an operating room, something to try and achieve hemostasis. So uh, the first First thing, you need to make sure you do everything that you normally do in all patients and then overlay that upon things that are unique to your extracorporeal patient. So the consideration would be only give a true reversal agent if you really need to. Be intentional about it. Recognize that there is a paucity of, of data regarding um, prothrombin complex concentrates or other emergency heroic uh, reversal agents. And there's certainly danger associated with it. And there's case reports describing that. Uh, and then the true reversal agents like activated factor seven uh, are fraught with risk in this population. So you need to be mindful of your circuit, but don't forget about the basic things. So wait, so what I'm hearing from you is I've got bleed, I've got maybe not like active hemorrhage, but let's say we just have constant oozing from the groin. Their hemoglobin is, sl is, is dropping slowly, but consistently. Um, I am avoiding PCC. Is that true? In, in general, uh, yes. You know, okay. one of the things that, that uh, thromboelastography and rotational thromboelastometry gives you access to is to unmask what's underneath your heparin. So if, you're, if your institution is using heparin for anticoagulation, you can administer heparinase to metabolize out all the heparin component. And then you can decide how much of your overall um, impairment in the ability to form clot is related to drug and how much is related to a factor deficiency. PCC will correct factor deficiency. But if your patient's hemorrhaging from a, um, a synthetic compound that you're giving the patient, the reversal or removal of that agent should be your first step before PCC. Also remember that PCC has a variety of, uh, of different um, drugs that are available within that category. Some are more fraught with complication, and that's because they err towards being more prothrombotic. So right. you might want to choose one that doesn't have any activated factor 7 in it. But what I want to know is you're the expert, Troy. You've done this more than, studied this more than probably any of us. So you have the bleeding patient. Are you giving them protamine? Is that what you're doing? And what kind of dosing of protamine, if that's what you're using, are you, are you giving? 
Excellent question. Um, so in, in a hemorrhaging patient, if we're going to reverse, um, at our institution, we we only give uh, between a quarter and a half dose of protamine. So it amounts to perhaps 25 milligrams of protamine at a time. And then you can repeat it because you only want to take the edge off your heparin. You don't want to abruptly reverse it all at once. Um, also, you want to try and avoid the co-administration of transfusions with your protamine. Um, we have a, a series of patients who, um, coming off of bypass, have received transfusion of platelets, crop precipitate, FFP, plus reversal. And that cocktail, that combination of reversal plus the transfusion, has caused massive thrombosis on a, on a mm. uh, reasonably large number of patients. So um, we have developed protocols to avoid that, and we've been able to avoid it for the past few years. So in it's your case, yeah, that's a great take home, great take home, because you're, you're, that's the exact situation where you're going to be doing all those things. So, so what about bivalirutin? What are you doing in those cases now that you have your new protocol? So bivalirutin has a 25-minute half-life um, that's fairly reliable, except in extreme renal impairment. Um, its molecular uh, properties make it very easy to dialyze. So if you've got the ability to institute renal replacement therapy, you can clear it very readily in an emergency with dialysis. And that is sort of the textbook answer. That is what the authors who write about bivalirudin describe in their manuscripts. Use bivalirudin because you can dialyze it. Now, my opinion, my, from a practical perspective, if you have a hemorrhaging patient, it is not going to be easy to then place a dedicated line or jack into your, your ECMO circuit to then start dialysis. It is just problematic. And realistically, by the time you achieve it, you've achieved several half-lives of the compound anyway. Um, we have not had any issues with needing to or wishing we could rapidly reverse it with an, a true antidote. We just haven't encountered it in the two years that we've been using this on a very regular basis. Um, if we're going to go for a, uh, a mediastinal washout or a surgical procedure, we don't pause the bivalirudin until the patient's being transported to the operating room. The half-life's that short. Hmm. Okay. That's, that seems very useful and maybe a take-home point. Okay. So you, you kind of mentioned a little bit about these, these factors and platelets and how do I, and I kind of know how to do it in a trauma patient. I know about our, you know, massive transfusion protocols for this. How do you manage the decision on when to give various factors uh, on these ECMO patients? Good question. The first thing um, is decide on the rapidity of bleeding. If you have a true massive hemorrhage, then you're going to have to be aggressive with trans your transfusion. You're going to end up giving these products simultaneously. It's just inevitable because you can't get behind on your intravascular volume. You won't be able to maintain ECMO flow and your patient won't do very well. Um, so the first question is how fast are you bleeding? The second thing is do your best to not give platelets and cryo with your FFP and your PRBCs. That doesn't mean you can't give them um, for that patient. It just means try not to co-infuse them at the identical same time. Wait until the FFP is in, then give your platelets, then give your cryoprecipitate. Um, and I would urge uh, the use of some of these, these lab tests to help guide your, your resuscitation with product transfusion. The, the, contemp or the, uh, the classic thresholds for um, hemoglobin targets, and these are patients who aren't actively hemorrhaging, was sort of normal hemoglobin to maintain oxygen carrying content. Uh, as we know from a variety of literature, both in and out of the intensive care unit, transfusion carries a lot of downsides, and hemoglobin uh, PRBT transfusion is one of those, those compounds. But we, we don't typically transfuse now on a stable patient until their hemoglobin is 6 or 7. Um, and in a hemorrhaging patient, we still try and achieve a steady state serum uh, blood level of a hemoglobin of around 7. 
we don't want to be too aggressive with it because of all the downsides of transfusion. Yeah, that's uh, don't tell Bob Bartlett that he will uh, <laughs> he'll uh, he'll think differently. But I but yeah, the uh, all the literature about about transfusion thresholds about being a lot lower. That's so you feel that those do translate to the ECMO patient. I do. Yeah, um, we have a, a large um, number of patients who we've been bridged to transplantation, and in those patients specifically, we want to minimize allogeneic exposure um, because if you give too much blood, they recognize the proteins as foreign and they are no longer transplantable. And I've been involved in several patients who we've had to turn off ECMO because they're no longer transplantable. And that's something we want to do our very, very best to avoid. And as such, we will tolerate quite low hemoglobin levels so long as they're able to do the things that we want them to do. That is maintaining normal lactates, perfusing their organs, having them in awake and ideally extubated. And if, if we come time to the, the point when during their rehab where we want them walking the halls, they may require a little bit higher hemoglobin to maintain oxygen carrying capacity. Um, but we sort of guide it on a, uh, on a very customized fashion. We see what they can do and we transfuse them only if we think that it is the missing thing that they're, they're needing. Wow, this is, this is really good stuff. So let me, let me try and just frame a picture for all of the, the listeners here. I've got a patient. They're in my ICU. They're arresting. I've got them getting you know, chest compressions. They've got trauma to their chest. They've got cannulas now in their groin. I'm about to start ECMO. I give them, in your ideal situation, I'm giving them a 5,000-unit bolus of heparin. We're turning on the circuit. We are then waiting until we think that we actually need to start them back on anticoagulation. At that point, I'm starting them on bivalirudin. If for some reason I have now hemorrhage that I think is is in need of reversal, with bivalirudin, I'm just simply turning it off and probably not even waiting to get a dialysis catheter in there. If I have dialysis in, I can immediately dialyze them, and, uh, and then we're essentially reversed. I want to use TEG to guide my product therapy and even look to see if we're maybe hyperfibrinolytic. And from there, I can then decide what type of blood products and how much of them I'm going to use, knowing that I should not be giving them together into the ECMO circuit. That's an excellent summary. There's one other point that I'd like to make, uh, and this has to do with something you alluded to earlier. Every procedure and every intervention that we do to our patients on ECMO has a risk of bleeding and hemorrhage. So things that in other patients are quite benign and we don't think all that carefully about them, like nasogastric tubes, um, peripheral IVs, Foley catheter insertions, chest tubes, patients on ECMO can succumb from them. They can have a persistent hemorrhage, they can develop DIC, they can require product transfusion, allogeneic exposure, um, and ultimately they can actually succumb or certainly have morbidity associated that is far in excess of non-ECMO patients. So the point is to be very, very intentional when you're dealing with any sort of perturbation to the patient's tissues. I think that's a very, very important point that is oftentimes overlooked. Awesome. Anything else for the listeners? No, I, th I think you did. A, this is a, a nice opportunity, and I, I appreciate it. And um, and please feel free to to email me, or or certainly Zach can get you in touch with me if you got questions. Yeah, we'll put all these things in the show notes. And I think Troy, I I'll want to have you back at some point because there is there is there is also some other nuances in here that we didn't quite get to. But I think uh, we'll leave it at that. And you can just tell from how Troy talks that he knows this stuff like the back of his hand. So um, Troy, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. And from ED ECMO, this is Zach Shiner signing off.